We might not like to admit this, but if cities had a mascot, it would almost certainly be the rat. You probably don't even think about rats as wildlife, which feels more like something pure and graceful, like a creature found in grassy nature, and not these big, twitching, disease-soaked worm tails that number in the millions in our concrete jungles. You're probably either trying not to think about them at all on a daily basis, or you're actively trying to destroy them. I mean, New York City has even hired a rat czar to lead its war against their two million-plus rats. Who knows, if the city wins, maybe New York's pizza slices can soon breathe a sigh of relief. But rats are actually kind of a perfect reflection of cities, too. They're resilient, they're protective, and they find a way to survive. What's more, there are so many rats in cities because of us. It turns out, cities aren't just concrete and glass. They're ecosystems. And in those ecosystems, we're giving rats exactly what they need to thrive. So if humans want to live well in cities, it may require us to also think about our neighbors. To be more specific, I'm talking about the ones in nature. Maybe not so much for rats. Those guys are disgusting. But maybe we don't always need to see wild animals as a threat that we need to kill. Like when a coyote wanders into our neighborhoods, or a raccoon gets into our trash bins, or a bunch of bats find a home under our bridges. Could making our cities a better place for humans and non-humans actually help us both? Welcome to City Space. I'm your host, Adrian Lee. After the break, we'll speak with environmental historian Peter Alagona to better understand that complicated relationship between animals and cities. This podcast is brought to you by Novo Nordisk. For a hundred years, Novo Nordisk has been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. Peter Alagona is a professor of environmental studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And he's the author of The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. Here's our conversation. So when, when folks think about cities, I think they often think of concrete. I think they often think of buildings. I don't think they're often thinking about animals, or if they are, they're kind of thinking about it in terms of pets. Your book suggests otherwise. Uh, why is that the case? Well, yeah, and I think that there are a lot of reasons that people people think that way. And, you know, in, in kind of the history of Western thought about urban areas and urbanization, uh, it's almost entirely until very recently focused on, on people. Cities are places for people. That goes back to uh, ancient, you know, Greek thought and philosophy, uh, philosophy from the Enlightenment and certainly from uh, the 20th century from some of the most important urbanists and, and urban thinkers. But, you know, something really surprising has happened in many urban areas over the past, you know, maybe 60, 70 years, really since World War II. And that is that uh, cities that were once uh, thought to be uh, really destroyers of natural habitats, and in some ways still are through suburban expansion and these sorts of things, have also attracted a lot of wildlife, including many species, that folks never really thought would thrive 
in those areas. And so that is now uh, over the last maybe uh, 20 years or so forced uh, ecologists and environmentalists, conservationists, urban planners to rethink cities, not just as places for people, but as unique ecosystems uh, that are also multi-species communities and uh, places where we might have to think about how to coexist, how to get along and how to increase the benefits of living with all of these creatures. Well, of course, reducing some of the costs and risks of doing it. So what are some of the animals that have found a way to uh, you know, make it in the city? Uh, one easy way to think of it is to divide them into a few categories. So uh, there are uh, the urban exploiters. These are the creatures that you see a lot of in almost every city around the world, right? They're the most familiar urban dwellers other than people. And uh, they include, you know, certain species of rodents, uh, rats, for example, uh, and also uh, some birds, for for example, like crows and pigeons that you just see in cities all, all around the world. They do well pretty much in every city. And in some cases, uh, those animals now only live in urban areas, and you can't really find them in any of their, you know, natural habitats where their ancestors evolved. Uh, then there are a group of creatures called the urban uh, adapters, and those are animals that can live in cities. They can actually attain population densities in urban areas far greater than they would in natural habitats, but they also require oftentimes some kind of green space a place to retreat to, uh, a place to, to bed down in during the day and then maybe come out and forage at night. And those include animals like uh, some hawks uh, and other raptors like owls. And they also include some familiar urban dwellers like raccoons and skunks and possums, uh, even coyotes. And then there are urban avoiders. The urban avoiders uh, are creatures that you almost never see in cities. They just do really poorly there. But sometimes you do see them as they're passing through or maybe experimenting in those areas. And those often include uh, much more large-bodied animals like large carnivores and omnivores, like black bears, mountain lions, uh, and others that certainly don't belong in cities. They don't really necessarily want to be there, uh, but sometimes they find themselves there, per particularly on the peripheries. Uh, maybe because they're trying to get from one patch of natural habitat to another, or maybe because they're being drawn into those areas by resources that people are indirectly or directly providing them. Mm. And and maybe we'll talk about that third category a little bit later. But just for the first two, you know, what is it that is drawing those animals to urban environments that is making them actually thrive here? You know, if you look at the animals that do best in urban areas that are able to really tap into those resources, food and water and shelter, you know, what are the qualities of those urban exploiters? Well, they tend to be relatively big brained probably compared to other animals that are closely related to them taxonomically. Uh, they tend to have cultures. In other words, they learn lessons, they experiment, and then they pass on those behaviors to their young. They tend to care for their young, uh, obviously. They tend to be generalists, which means they can live in a wide variety of environments as opposed to being restricted to a specific ecosystem. And they also tend to be omnivores. Oh, and by the way, they tend to be social, which means that they can tolerate large numbers of their uh, same species. So flexible, generalist, social, omnivore, and relatively big-brained. What does that remind you of? It certainly reminds us of people who live in cities. People, yes. And so I'm sure that your your listeners um, to this show don't necessarily want to hear that they have a lot in common with rats and pigeons, but 
the reason we see lots of rats and pigeons in urban areas is because they do have some things in common with people that allow them to live and exploit those kinds of environments. Omnivory is in particular a very important one of those. If you can eat almost anything, then living in a city is a pretty good place to be. Uh, why is it important for cities to you know, create hospitable environments for animals? I guess in part, my question is, what do we get out of it? Well, you know, the, the amazing thing about that is that if you flip the quiz question on its head, then you actually understand how we got here. During, you know, what we often refer to for shorthand as like the Victorian era, you know, late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, urbanization occurred very rapidly in some areas. Cities grew very, very quickly uh, due to migration from rural areas, industrialization, immigration, all of these forces, um, really a, a dramatic era of urban growth. And the cities that developed during that time had a lot of problems with them. There was a lot of poverty. There was violence. There was social conflict. There was a lot of pollution, a lack of sanitation, a lack of access to uh, fresh air, open space, clean water, all of these things. And so uh, new generations of urban thinkers and planners. In the U.S., this happened actually largely after the, the U.S. Civil War uh, because all of these people had been trained to, to do things like keep army camps clean and healthy. And then after the war, they came back to the cities and they looked at the cities and said, oh, we need to apply some of those same ideas to cities. But it happened in other parts of the world too, uh, that the idea was to make cities cleaner and greener for people. And so what happened? You had campaigns to establish public parks. You had campaigns to uh, clean up urban areas where there were a lot of domesticated animals wandering around for better and worse. There was a lot of conflict around that. You had campaigns to um, plant trees in urban areas, which in some cities had actually been outlawed for many years because trees were seen as fire hazards during a time when most buildings were, were constructed primarily of wood. Uh, and also efforts to, to clean up waterways, for example, to provide more, uh, more water sources for growing urban populations. And so people were making all of these changes, making all of these reforms to urban areas to improve the quality of these places for humans. These same things, tree planting, for example, enabled eventually decades later, many wild creatures to return or come to these places for the first time, in part because of things that we had done to try to improve the quality of life for people. And so to come back to your question, what I would say that we can learn from that is that the things that we often do to improve quality of life for people sometimes do tend to help other creatures, not always, but sometimes, and vice versa. I mean, it's a compelling case that there are a lot of synergies between the success of wildlife in our cities and the people who live in it. It feels like conservation and, and those kinds of efforts are a little bit lagging behind in cities. What are, what are the, some of the challenges around that in particular? So when you think of cities as just a place for people, then conservation is something that happens out in the countryside or in the national park. And so in urban areas, the paradigm has not really generally been conservation. It's been pest control. And so a big part of what I was trying to do with this book is to say that, you know, we have this uh, accidental ecosystem. That's the, the name of the book. And the reason for that is that things that we often did for people turned out to bring all these animals in. And so now we have more animals than we've had in many cities 
uh, for a very long time. Uh, and what we need to be doing is thinking maybe for the future, not of an accidental ecosystem, but a more intentional one. And so what does that mean? That means rethinking what conservation means. Maybe conservation isn't really just about limiting hunting or regulating hunting and fishing and wildland areas or setting aside nature preserves. Maybe it's also thinking about rethinking how we do pest control in cities. You know, I often joke with people, well, you know, if you want fewer rats in your city, then maybe one good solution to that is to have more owls, right? We know that owls, you know, are nocturnal animals. They're out at night. There are lots of rodents in our cities at night. And so that requires really rethinking kind of from the ground up what it means to do conservation, uh, how we've thought about pest control, and thinking about creating healthy habitats uh, for people and animals, not just dealing with problems on a one-off basis as they arise. Mm -hmm. The the framing of pest control, I think, is interesting because uh, it does label animals as pests, as things we don't want. So as part of the reframing here about whether we need to reconsider animals as pests. I mean, a classic example is rats, right? We have this classic adversarial relationship with them, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, it would seem impossible that we could ever be rid of them. So is it about shifting our mindsets around what is or isn't a pest? Or, you know, what what is the what is the way forward on what we consider pests? That, that's that's a, a great question and a huge topic. So, um, I, I am not a fan of uh, rats in my home. <laughs> um, I want folks to know that. On the other hand, I admire rats, you know, because they are amazing creatures. There's a reason we use them for biomedical research, right? Uh, because they reflect a lot of things about us because we can understand a lot of things about ourselves and the world through them. On the other hand, I don't think anyone would argue that we need more rats in a place like Toronto or New York City or or Los Angeles. So the the paradigm has often been you trap them when you ha when you find them, or you poison them when you find them. Well, when you trap them, they often suffer, right? And so some people don't don't care about that. But I think that when we cause animal suffering, we tend to reduce our own humanity in some ways, unnecessary suffering that is. And then you know when we poison them, those poisons amplify through the system. In Southern California, tests have been done on bobcats, which everybody loves. Bobcats don't cause any problems. Um, it's really fun to see them. But something like 85% of the bobcats that have been tested in Southern California have anticoagulant rodenticides in their bloodstream. So they have blood thinners that are used to kill rats um, in their bloodstream. And so that means that we are unintentionally poisoning the very animals that are helping us to control our pests, the predators. How do we reduce rat populations? Well, it's better to manage the habitat than it is to kill the animals. And so managing the habitat really means getting a much better grip on how we handle our food waste. In the United States, we waste about 40% of the food that's, that's produced and sold in stores. And so uh, controlling our food waste is an important thing, but also to, to realize that just seeing one of these animals going about its business in an urbanized environment is not necessarily a reason to think that they're a pest or they need to be eradicated. Are there are there any examples you could point to of interesting ways that cities have engaged or embraced or integrated an animal that once was sort of seen as a threat or a nuisance and the way that they did that actually benefited the city more broadly? For those of folks who are not familiar with this story, um, you know, Austin, Texas is a, a city that has boomed. Um, has become one of the, one of the biggest American cities over the last several decades. 
Uh, and so there's been a lot of development and a lot of um, upgrading of infrastructure. Back in the 1980s, uh, a key bridge going through the city over um, over body of, of, of water uh, that passes right through downtown uh, was reconfigured, reconstructed, the Ann Richards uh, Congress Avenue Bridge. And when they, they rebuilt the bridge, uh, the engineers recognized that because Austin is a place that gets very hot during the summertime, you needed to provide space between the key members, um, steel and concrete, uh, to expand and contract uh, over time with, with the heat in the city. So it was an engineering uh, design intervention. And so on the underside of the bridge, they left these gaps, these small gaps for the members to expand and contract with with temperature. Well, it turned out that at around the same time, there was all this development going on out in the suburbs, uh, some cave habitat, very important karst limestone cave habitat, uh, had really been been demolished or disturbed uh, that was reducing habitat for migrating populations of bats, including Mexican free-tailed bats. Well, some of these Mexican free-tailed bats uh, started roosting on the bottom side of the bridge. And before they knew it, Austin had a situation where there were bats sort of all over the place. And they were not just on the other side of the bridge. They were on other structures, stadiums and things. Uh, and people were, were quite scared. They were quite concerned. And so some folks there who were really dedicated recognized early on that this was an opportunity uh, to do urban conservation. And so they worked with the city. They tried to pull back some of the efforts that the city was implementing to get rid of these bats, to eradicate them, uh, which were underway at that point. There were essentially no conflicts that emerged with it. And people started to recognize that these bats were eating millions of mosquitoes. And so now, fast forward, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, Austin's mascot is the, is the bat. Um, and in the summertime, you can go there, you can rent a kayak or get on one of these booze cruises in the evening in the summertime and go out there and have a glass of wine and watch the bats come out from under the bridge and eat all of these insects. And it's a big party. It's one of the best parties in Austin. And that's kind of an amazing thing. So what, what you have there is an example of people's attitudes changing. You have a changing ecosystem creating uh, changes in the way that animals use it and occupy habitat. You have the city uh, adjusting to it and embracing this. And you have benefits that include the kinds of ecosystem services of the bats reducing insect pests while also providing an economic boon for the city of all of these people who go there um, to see that and to participate in that that wonderful kind of spectacle on, on a summer evening. And so um, th that's the kind of thing that, that I talk about and I would love to see uh, a lot more of from a lot of other cities. That was fascinating. Thanks uh, so much, Peter, for joining us. Thank you so much, Adrian. Okay, so as Peter just laid out, it can be a really good thing for cities to consider nature and integrate at least a little bit of wildlife into the mix. But how can cities do that better? We'll discuss after the break. Since the beginning of our company, Novo Nordisk, a hundred years ago, we have been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives. And while people today are living longer than ever before, Rising rates of obesity and diabetes threaten the health and prosperity of future generations. Together with our partners, we are going beyond medicine to strengthen disease prevention and early intervention, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit NovoNordisk.ca.
Erica Spotswood is a senior ecologist at Second Nature, an urban planning consultancy specializing in integrating nature into urban design. She's also the co-author of The Biological Desert's Fallacy, a paper that outlines the unique ways that cities contribute to regional biodiversity. I think we tend to view cities as sort of this antithesis of nature, sort of like an ecological vacuum, or as you call it, a biological desert. But your paper argues that we should think about cities as unique ecological landscapes of their own, which can contribute to the biodiversity of a region. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so for a long time, that is what we thought. We sort of discounted and ignored the biodiversity that was going on in cities and what was there and what was showing up. But over time, scientists who were studying ecology more generally started to look more at cities. And as they started to measure and record what was there, we we noticed that actually cities are not biological deserts. It is So while it is true that cities do contain fewer species on average than non-urban landscapes, there's, we've also realized that there is a lot of biodiversity thriving in and among, in and among our buildings living within us. These are sort of maybe accidental habitats and accidental ecosystems, but they are thriving in and among our midst, even though we're not paying attention to them and not really even noticing them. And your ecologist work and the work of other sort of urban ecologists is, you know, sort of to integrate uh, the ecological world into city planning more directly. You know, why is it important for city dwellers to feel connected to nature or in this case, specifically animals? Yeah, so I think I think there's there's reasons that have to do with us and reasons that have to do with biodiversity. So the sort of intrinsic intrinsic reason why we might care about biodiversity in cities is is because um, the animals in particular, well, they're, they're already there, right? If we, and so if we know that they're there, then I think there's a moral argument to be made that we should be taking the best care of them that we can in the places where they live. The other reason has to do with people. Contact with nature has huge numbers of benefits to both our mental and our uh, physical health. Living in close contact to, to nature has been associated with lower odds of depression and um a huge number of other measures of mental mental well-being as well. For wildlife in particular, what we know there is that having contact with animals also can make us feel good. So, for for example, uh, there's been a couple of studies recently that have looked at um, the mental well-being benefits of of being exposed to birdsong that have found that just being surrounded by birdsong makes us in a better mood and makes us feel good. And then there's also um, the potential for Unique wildlife encounters can often inspire awe and sort of transcendent experiences that can stay with us for a long time. So I think one of the the sort of major issues when we when we think about animals in the city is that there are these moments of conflict and confrontation, you know, this idea that humans need to be safe from animals. On the flip side, we're kind of where they are. Uh, so, you know, are there good examples of places where cities have integrated this kind of thinking, this, this, uh, uh, you know, ways to avoid these kinds of these kinds of confrontation so they don't happen? Yeah, human wildlife conflict is one of the is one of the challenges as cities become greener and have more animals in them. This is this is the new frontier of 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 how we think about biodiversity in cities is learning how to manage the potential conflicts that can arise. Really, really important sort of next step as cities get greener. And so, one city that's been thinking um, a lot about this is the city of San Francisco. So. Um, San Francisco had coyotes in it until about the 1940s, 1950s. People hated them. 
And there was a citywide campaign to eradicate them from the city using a combination of poisons and (laughs) sending people out to shoot them. And it succeeded. So by around the 1950s, the coyotes were completely gone from San Francisco. And then in 2002, a couple of coyotes were spotted in the Presidio, which is a very large national park in the northern part of San Francisco, right next to the Golden Gate Bridge. And since then, the city has decided to try uh, to do an experiment in coexisting with coyotes. And it has been a real learning lesson. And they've um, done a lot of innovation around trying to figure out how to manage coyotes effectively uh, and trying to crack that nut of learning how to coexist with wildlife. And I think one of the lessons there is that people are not used to having these animals in their midst. And as they come in, we are going to have to sort of make a decision. Are we going to live with them or are we going to try to eradicate them again? And if we're going to try to live with them, then there's going to be a lot of work that needs to get done in order to make that a solution that can work for folks. So um, the Presidio, what they've done in the Presidio is they've joined up with the other agencies in the city. So the city plus the Department of the Environment in the city, plus the Animal Control Agency, plus the other park agencies that are also managing other parks in the city to create a collaborative working group that helps to think through the coyote management in the city. And what that group has been able to do is develop a shared set of protocols so that every agency is is managing coyote conflicts in the same way. So that's been really important because what it means is that if you have an incident with your dog and a coyote and you go to animal control, they'll deal with it the same way as if it happens in a park and you go to the to, to the park ranger. They've also put collars on on the animals and tracked where they go, and that's given them a lot of insight. And they've learned from that that the potential for a human-wildlife conflict with coyotes is mostly centered around um, dogs that approach coyotes when they're in their pupping season. And so having learned that, they've learned that the best thing to do in the Presidio and the other parks is to close trails to dogs during the, um, the reproductive breeding season. And so that's done a lot to minimize conflict. The other thing that they've done is they've had lots of public meetings and tabling events where they've been able to interact with with the public in a really extensive way over a long period of time. And the take-home message from this story, I I think, is that it takes time. This is a big undertaking to try to educate people and come up with management solutions that are a win-win for both people and wildlife. That's not an easy thing, but that's. But I think that um, there's good evidence in, from San Francisco that it is working. And what we're seeing now is the Presidio and the other agencies involved in this work are reporting fewer complaints from the public. And while it's anecdotal evidence, they believe that what's happening is people are learning, have learned. And as they learn, they know what to do and they're more prepared. And so the conflicts are resolving to some extent um, themselves on their own. That's not to say there aren't still conflicts, but they they are reporting a decline in these types of incidents. Well, how do you make that argument to your average city person? I mean, maybe San Francisco had this education approach down, but uh, you know what happened to the coyotes in the 40s and 50s, It, as you said, it worked, right? You know, eradicating them worked by all measures. So how do you make that argument to folks who ultimately see the wildlife as a threat and believe that eradication is the safest and best option for them? I think that part of this is about education. It's about um, giving people um, the, the information about the risks associated with coyotes. So 
People may have fear because they don't of, of what they don't understand. So the first step, I think, is that education. So in the case of coyotes, coyotes do pose very low threat to to, to people, at least adult to adults. And um, coyote bites are recorded to be something like twenty in the entire United States, something like twenty per year, whereas dog bites are more like a thousand per per week or per month. So really, really much larger numbers of people are getting bitten by dogs than they are bitten by coyotes. So I think I think step one is sort of making sure people have the right information about what the risks really are. That said, that's not going to solve it for everyone. And there are still cases where coyotes have approached small children. That's terrifying for everyone and no one wants that. And so the other piece of it that the Presidio is, or that um, San Francisco is doing, is if there are cases of specific individuals, and this tends to be individuals who are fed by people who have become, who have lost their fear of people, problematic individuals, there is still lethal control of those individuals if there are incidents that threaten humans and public safety. So the other answer is people need to know that their safety will be considered in cases where the risk is larger than the potential upside for a particular individual coyote. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. On the next episode of City Space, we're talking about immigration and housing. Canada hopes to welcome a record-breaking number of immigrants over the next three years, with a milestone goal of 500,000 new permanent residents by 2025. That's a good thing. But are we thinking enough about where they're all going to live? Competition for housing in our biggest cities is already so stiff. How are we going to make sure there's enough housing for everyone? City Space is produced by Julia Delorentis Johnston and Kyle Fulton. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thanks to Peter and Erica for joining us today. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And tell your favorite city dweller about City Space, too. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.